Chapter Seventeen of the Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Donna Stewart, Seattle, Washington. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter Seventeen. Orphans, Keseberg and his accusers, sensational accounts of the tragedy at Donner Lake, property sold and guardian appointed, kindly Indians, Grandpa, marriage of Elitha. The report of our affliction spread rapidly, and the well-meaning tender-hearted women at the fort came to condole and weep with us, and made their children weep also by urging, now do say something comforting to these poor little girls who were frozen and starved up in the mountains and are now orphans in a strange land without any home or any one to care for them such ordeals were too overwhelming i would rush off alone among the wild flowers to get away from the torturing sympathy even there i met those who would look at me with great serious eyes shake their heads and mournfully say you poor little mite, how much better it would be if you had died in the mountains with your dear mother, instead of being left alone to struggle in this wicked world. This would but increase my distress, for I did not want to be dead and buried up there under the cold deep snow, and I knew that mother did not want me to be there either. Had she not sent me away to save me, and asked God our Heavenly Father to take care of me? Intense excitement and indignation prevailed at the fort after Captain Fallon and other members of his party gave their account of the condition found at the mountain camps, and of interviews had with Keseberg, whom they now called cannibal, robber, and murderer. The wretched man was accused by this party not only of having needlessly partaken of human flesh and of having appropriated coin and other property which should have come to us orphaned children, but also of having wantonly taken the life of Mrs. Murphy and of my mother. Some declared him crazy, others called him a monster. Keseberg denied these charges and repeatedly accused Fallon and his party of making false statements. He sadly acknowledged that he had used human flesh to keep himself from starving, but he swore that he was guiltless of taking human life. He stated that Mrs. Murphy had died of starvation soon after the departure of the third relief, and that my mother had watched my father's bedside until he died. After preparing his body for burial, she had started out on the trail to go to her children. In attempting to cross the distance from her camp to his, she had strayed and wandered about far into the night, and finally reached his cabin wet, shivering and grief-stricken, yet determined to push onward. She had brought nothing with her but told him where to find the money to take to her children in the event of her not reaching them. He stated that he offered her food, which she refused. He then attempted to persuade her to wait until morning, and while they were talking, she sank upon the floor completely exhausted, and he covered her with blankets and made a fire to warm her. In the morning, he found her cold in death. 
Keseberg's vehement and steadfast denial of the crimes which he stood accused of saved him from personal violence, but not from suspicion and ill-will. Women shunned him, and children stoned him as he walked about the fort. The California Star printed in full the account of the Fallon Party, and blood-curdling editorials increased public sentiment against Keseberg, stamping him with the mark of Cain, and closing the door of every home against him. Elitha and Leanna tried to keep us little ones in ignorance of the report that our father's body was mutilated, also of what was said about the alleged murder of our mother. Still, we did hear fragments of conversations which greatly disturbed us, and our sisters found it difficult to answer some of our questions. Meanwhile, more disappointments for us were brewing at the fort. Fallon's party demanded an immediate settlement of its claim. It had gone up the mountains under promise that its members should have not only a per diem as rescuers, but also one half of all the property that they might bring to the settlement, and they had brought valuable packs from the camps of the Donners. Captain Fallon also had $225 in gold coin taken from concealment on Keseberg's person and $275 additional taken from a cache that Keseberg had disclosed after the captain had partially strangled him and otherwise brutally treated him to extort information of hidden treasure. Keseberg did not deny that this money belonged to the Donners, but asserted that it was his intention and desire to take it to the Donner children himself, as he had promised their mother. Eventually, it was agreed that the Donner properties would be sold at auction and that one half of the proceeds should be handed over to Captain Fallon to satisfy the claims of his party, and the other half should be put into the hands of a guardian for support of the Donner children. Hiram Miller was appointed guardian by Alcalde Sinclair. Notwithstanding these plans for our well-being, unaccountable delays followed, making our situation daily more trying. Elitha was not yet fifteen years of age, and Liana was two years younger. They had not fully recovered from the effects of their long privations and physical sufferings in the mountains, and the loss of parents and means of support placed upon them responsibilities greater than they could carry, no matter how bravely they strove to meet the situation. How can we provide for ourselves and these little sisters was a question which haunted them by night and perplexed them by day. They had no way of communicating with our friends in eastern states, and the women at the fort could ill afford to provide longer for us, since their breadwinners were still with Fremont and their own supplies were limited. Finally, my two eldest sisters were given employment by different families in exchange for food, which they shared with us. But it was often insufficient, and we little ones drifted along forlornly. Sometimes home was where night overtook us. Often we trudged to the rancheria beyond the pond made by the adobe molders who had built the houses and walls surrounding the fort. There the Indian mothers were good to us. They gave us shreds of smoked fish and dried acorns to eat, lowered from their backs the queer little baby beds called bikuses, and made the chubby faces in them laugh for our amusement. They also let us pet the dogs that perked up their ears and wagged their tails as our own Uno used to do when he wanted to frolic. 
Sometimes they stroked our hair and rubbed the locks between their fingers, then felt their own as if to note the difference. They seemed sorry because we could not understand their speech. The pond also, with its banks of flowers, winding path, and dimpling waters, had charms for us until one day's experience drove us from it forever. We three were playing near it when a joyous Indian girl with a bundle of clothes on her head ran down the bank to the water's edge. We, following, watched her drop her bundle near a board that sloped from a rock onto nature's tub, then kneel upon the upper end and souse the clothes merrily up and down in the clear water. She lathered them with a freshly gathered soap root and cleansed them according to the ways of the Spanish mission teachers. As she tied the wet garments in a bundle and turned to carry them to the drying ground, Frances espied some loose yellow poppies floating near the end of the board and laid down upon it for the purpose of catching them. Georgia and I saw her lean over and stretch out her hand as far as she could reach, saw the poppies drift just beyond her fingertips, saw her lean a little farther, then slip head first into the deep water. Such shrieks as terrified children give brought the Indian girl quickly to our aid. Like a flash, she tossed the bundle from her head, sprang into the water, snatched Frances as she rose to the surface, and restored her to us without a word. Before we had recovered sufficiently to speak, she was gone. Not a soul was in sight when we started toward the fort, all unconscious of what the inevitable is to be, was weaving into our lives. We were too young to keep track of time by calendar, but counted it by happenings. Some were marked with tears, some with smiles, and some stole unawares upon us, just as on that bright June evening when we did not find our sisters and aimlessly followed others to the little shop where a friendly-appearing elderly man was cutting slices of meat and handing them to customers. We did not know his name, nor did we realize that he was selling the meat he handed out, only that we wanted some. So after all the others had gone, we addressed him, asking, Grandpa, please give us a little piece of meat. He looked at us and inquired whose children we were and where we lived. Upon learning, he turned about, lifted a liver from a wooden peg, and cut for each a generous slice. On our way out, a neighbor intercepted us and said that we should sleep at her house that night and see our sisters in the morning. She also gave us permission to cook our pieces of liver over her bed of live coals. Frances offered to cook them all on her stick, but Georgia and I insisted it would be fun for each to broil her own. I, being the smallest child, was given the shortest stick and allowed to stand nearest the fire. Soon the three slices were sizzling and browning from the ends of three willow rods, and smelled so good that we could hardly wait for them to be done. Presently, however, the heat began to burn my cheeks and also the hand that held the stick. The more I wiggled about, the hotter the fire seemed, and it ended in Francis having to fish my piece of liver from among the coals, burned in patches, curled over bits of dying embers, and pretty well covered with ashes but she knew how to scrape them away, and my supper was not spoiled. Our neighbor gave us breakfast next morning and spruced us up a bit, then led us to the house where a number of persons had gathered, most of them sitting at table laughing and talking, and among them, Elitha and Leanna. 
Upon our entrance the merriment ceased, and all eyes were turned inquiringly toward us. Someone pointed to him who sat beside our eldest sister, and gaily said, "'Look at your new brother!' Another asked, "'How do you like him?' We gazed around in silent amazement, until a third continued teasingly, "'She is no longer Elitha Donner, but Mrs. Perry McCoon. You have lost your sister, for her husband will take her away with him.' "'Lost your sister?' Those harrowing words stirred our pent feelings to anguish so keen that he who had uttered them in sport was touched with pity by the pain they caused. Tears came also to the child-wife's eyes as she clasped her arms about us soothingly, assuring us that she was still our sister and would care for us. Nevertheless, she and her husband slipped away soon on horseback, and we were told that we were to stay at our neighbor's until they returned for us. This marriage, which was solemnized by Alcalde John Sinclair on the 4th of June, 1847, was approved by the people at the fort. Children were anxious to play with us because we had a married sister and a new brother. Women hurried through noon chores to meet outside, and some, in their eagerness, forgot to roll down their sleeves before they began to talk. One triumphantly repeated to each newcomer the motherly advice which she gave the young couple when she first noticed his affection for that sorrowing girl, who was too pretty to be in this new country without a protector. They also recalled how Perry McCoon's launch had brought supplies up the river for the second relief to take over the mountains, and how finally he himself had carried to the bereaved daughter the last accounts from Donner Camp. Then the speakers wondered how soon Elitha would be back. Would she take us three to live with her upon that cattle ranch, twenty-five miles by bridle trail from the fort? And would peace and happiness come to us there. End of chapter 17. Recorded by Donna Stewart, Seattle, Washington.